Welcome to the Western Baal podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of this series is to offer something useful to those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Working with Money as Spiritual Practice. Panel discussion with Regina Sarah Ryan, Tom Lennon, and Vijay Fedorshak took place on April 15, 2023, via Zoom. Regina is the editor of Home Press. Tom is a retired cultural resource consultant, and Vijay is the organizer of the Western Bowl podcast series. Regina begins this talk by joking about her fictional background in Broadway musicals and about the panelists having resolved all of their issues with money. She, Tom, and Vijay then discuss some of their practice and experience of working with spiritual principles and money. The panel reflects on the wisdom of various teachers around financial resources, including that of their teacher, Lee Lozowick, who died in 2010. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. So nice to see everybody again and some for the first time. So I always go back to my Broadway show background as a musical star of Broadway. What's the song that comes to mind when you think of Fiddler on the Roof? If I were a rich man. If I were a rich man. Yeah. Yes. I wouldn't have to work hard. That's the most popular song out of that whole show. It's a classic. It's endured for years and years. But that's the song that sticks in people's minds. Of course, it's got a great melody. But I think it sticks with us because it says something. It has some value. Now, unfortunately, you're probably going to be singing it for the next three days because I've mentioned it here. I know how those things work. But the song is really quite interesting because it starts off with he wouldn't have to work hard. And then it goes into he built a house, many stories, and he'd have one great staircase going up and one even longer coming down. <laughs> The words are just so unique, but he's also speaking about something of wanting to build something that's bigger and better and more outstanding than anybody in his village or something that's so out of the ordinary from the humble peasant life that he lives because he's a fiddler on the roof. You have to balance as a peasant on the roof because you could fall at any moment with a lack of funds or something else. And it goes on. It, it says that then his wife, Golda, she could be a great lady and she could have servants and she could nag at those servants all day long and complain about her servants. So she wouldn't have to complain to him. But he brings in this whole notion that she would have power and she'd have status and he'd be bringing to his family some kind of special acknowledgement from the poor people of the town. But you know how the song ends when he comes to the final verse? He says, what would be the greatest gift of all? Does anybody remember what he says would be the greatest gift of all about being a rich man? Okay, the hands are not going up. What he really wants to do is study. He wants to study the Torah. Yes. That's what he wants to do at this time. Yes. He wants to study the Torah, the holy books several hours every day. That would be the greatest gift of all. So I think it's just such a lovely introduction to this type of a talk because it really hit the culture as a snappy song, but also because it hits something very deep. Certainly people want to have status and they want to have the bigger house and they want their wives to be famous. But when he finally got down to the truth of it, it was that he wanted the money to give him some extra leisure 
so that he could study the Dharma. So I leave that with you by way of a piece of interest, but I also leave it with a question, which is, do you have to have money to have leisure to study the Dharma? And the question that arises in this is that so many times, I'm bringing this as a question because these are all considerations that I deal with, among many things regarding money and spiritual practice of any kind, it's very easy to say, oh, if only I didn't have to take care of my kids, I would have more time for my spiritual life. If only I didn't have to do this job, I could really practice. If only I had more money, I could really practice. So I remember years and years ago giving a talk at a women's conference, and it was a conference for mothers. They were mothers with newborn babies. A mother with a newborn, every moment of her day is involved in her care for that child. How is she going to bring her spiritual practice to that moment? And so that's the exploration that we did with all kinds of things. The child is God. The use of mantra, lullabies are prayers to God, all of those different things. So that's our first question. Is there really an excuse of why we can't bring spiritual life into all aspects of our day? Is there something that's really holding us back from that? So we're not coming to you with answers, even though we happen to have money completely handled. We don't have to worry about money. We're bringing questions that hopefully will inspire your own contemplations on this subject. So I started my spiritual life in the convent or before the convent. I took a vow of poverty. It's an interesting thing to do. And basically what that meant was I was dependent upon the benevolence of my superiors who doled out the products and the things we needed, or if I needed money to have to ask for it. But the bigger thing about the vow of poverty was not that you had to be dependent upon your mother superior. The bigger thing about the vow of poverty was that you took that in order that you would have less need for a type of obsession with having to create money to survive. And what's behind that is that It was an act of faith that if we devoted our lives to the teaching, to God, that we would be provided for, not by the convent, not by the Catholic Church, because not every place had the resources, but by the divine. And some of that comes out of the Christian scriptures. Look at the lilies of the field. They don't have to toil and they don't have to gather, but your heavenly Father takes care of them. So I've had some really direct examples in my life of people who have made that not just as an experiment, but really as a way of life. I have two friends who are monks. They're down in the outskirts of Tucson, out in a tiny place called Bowie, Arizona. And they basically have left a formal Carmelite monastery and have established themselves in the desert as hermit monks. And they have no money and no income except what is given to them as gifts. So they rely upon God to give them their resources. I love these guys. I've only met them once, but I've had correspondence with them over the years. And I want to do anything I can to support somebody making that radical a stand in faith. So one thing I do is once a year at Christmas time, I take a percentage of my income and I send it to them to support that kind of radical witness to reliance on God. It's pretty awesome. I had the opportunity just this past year, I went out to this odd ashram in Cornville, Arizona. Who's ever heard of Cornville? So there was this Swami, he's an American, but he's in a Hindu tradition. This guy had been a multi-millionaire executive living in California, and yet always had this incredible hunger for truth. His life was falling apart, and he happened to come across 
the teachings of Yogananda. And then he came across the writings of Peace Pilgrim, the woman who, you probably have heard of her story, walked across the United States, walked back and forth several times, relying on God, relying on faith. So this guy, he makes this radical commitment. He enters into a sannyas initiation through his guru, and he takes on this commitment that he's going to walk the U.S. in the steps of Peace Pilgrim. He follows exactly the route that she took. He left from the Rose Bowl in California, which was where she started, and walked to this place in New Jersey. He walked on the back roads all through the United States without money. He did have a cell phone. People would contact him from different places, people who knew he was coming, and they would invite him to come and spend a day or two at different places and talk to them. And so he wrote this biography of his journey, which I happened to read, and then I went and met the guy. I tell you this because it's almost unbelievable, the miracles that happened to this guy all along the way. He would have been given money the day before and had enough to buy two small bottles of water which he put in his backpack with some crackers or something. And he'd start off down this deserted desert highway in Arizona or Colorado or someplace. And the next thing you know, he'd be almost out of water and a car would pull up beside him and say, bet you could use some water. And this was not a one-time shot. This was day after day after day after day. So he gets to New Jersey. It was the anniversary of Peace Pilgrim's Walk. I'm not telling you that story because I think you should do that. (laughs) But I am telling you the story because I think it's interesting to look at the way in which this kind of radical faith opens us to divine intervention or help. So that no matter what our financial situations are, this kind of attitude, this kind of openness is really actually beneficial and magical. And there were some days when he would suffer, but he made it. When I saw him, he was a healthy guy. So these are just a couple of stories. When I took my own vow of poverty, you know, I was young. I was 18, 19 years old. I can't say that I had the deep appreciation of what that was then that I have now. Some of it was funny because You never talked about something as being yours. You talk about our toothpaste and our toothbrush. (laughs) I lost our toothbrush. And even in our notebooks, we would not write our names. We would write for the use of, à l'usage de, we write it in French, à l'usage de. It was these tiny ways in which we were being invited to have a slight degree of non-identification with possession and that this was mine. I own this. I am this thing. And if you take it, I'm on you. But I think I have a different appreciation of this vow of poverty today than I did when I was 19 years old. My family, we never lacked for food. But my dad did grow up in the Depression. My dad had this saying, beat the system, which was always about get a bargain, pay less than you have to, get the discount. So I was having some conversations about this subject with somebody today, and they were saying that certainly there's reasonableness to that, especially if you're trying to support a family and you have a really limited income and so on, and you're wanting to get a good deal for something. But this person said to me, you know, in the practices of the Bodhisattva, the practice of generosity is so primary. And that you might end up paying a little bit more, but you might end up supporting that person who you were buying the thing from, rather than getting the greatest deal on the internet that you could possibly find. These could be radical ideas if we start taking them seriously about generosity and about this whole mentality of got to get the most out of my dollar. I think that mood of generosity 
applies in so many things. So I'm in the Landmark Forum. I'm actually in the communication advanced course of the Landmark Forum. Some of you know me. I'm not afraid to talk. I'm right out there. So I stand up to say something, and I'm starting to talk, and the coach just stops me right on the spot. And he has everybody looking at me, and he says to the group, this woman is incredibly stingy. Well, that's a little bit of a wake-up call. And what he was saying, as he continued on in the work that he was doing with me, what he was saying was that this woman has talents and love and power and goodness and greatness. And I say that to you all. And yet she doles it out in little tiny packets, just in the right places. She's not willing to let herself pour forth the fullness of that love, that power, that graciousness, that generosity that she is. So that's the kind of thing where you get a slap in the face on one side, and then you're also just being hugged and touched on the other side. It puts you in this really interesting place of looking at yourself in relationship to this word. So I'm offering those words by way of saying, what words would you apply to yourself with regard to money and energy and life force and love and the sharing of that? At the one point, there would be complete rigidity and closeness to any of that. This place of stinginess, I don't like that word. I don't ever want to be considered to be stingy. It's a really strong word. Where am I stingy in my love? Where am I stingy in my energetic saying of yes? And also, where am I stingy in my use of money? I'll leave you with one more thing. And I have so much to say, but we'll get to it as we have our conversation. My dear friend, Lalita, has an ashram in Canada. She has these rules. She calls them anti-Lalita's rules. One of her rules is called Always give more than is expected. And I think she devised that rule because she has some students who are going through divorce. And what she saw was that in the process of divorce, there's just so much that comes up as far as mine and possession. Fair is fair. And I gave this and you give that. And her advice to her students and friends was, What could you do? How could you give more than was expected? And as a principle for life, with regard to money and spiritual life, how could I give more in a day-to-day basis than what is expected? Hi, everyone. Good to be with you. I ask you to imagine this. An old man bent over, worried, walking down a dark urban street, heading home. As he walks, he's accosted by a mugger with a gun, yells at the old man, your money or your life. The old man stops and looks. The impatient robber pokes him again and yells, well, what is it? The old man feels pressured and yells back, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. This is for me a great example of what happens to us when we think about our energy and our life. What does this little story tell us in terms of investigating ourselves? The funny part of it for me is more funny like, yeah, there's something deep in this. I'm thinking about whether My life is more important than my money, or my money is more important than my life. This whole idea of being stopped with pressure to answer the question, your money or your life, I would suggest it's a very big deal because we've been living our life one way or the other. We have been giving away our energy. How? Well, part of the spiritual practice we may be discussing tonight is observing how we think. And how much of our thinking is an identity of 
who we think we are, how our thoughts define who we are. And so everything related to money is a reflection of that until we engage in a greater understanding of being that which is bigger than our definition of ourself. I think Regina is alluding to that about offering more than what is expected service. So as I was thinking about this, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, it brought me back to a time in my life when I first began to think of money. Like Regina's dad, my dad came out of the depression and we did the best we could, which was great. But when I was 14, this may sound funny to a lot of people who aren't as old as I am, things are changing in American culture where we were running around at 14 with little radios called transistor radios that tuned us into the world beyond our parents, beyond my Catholic school. So there were influences coming in. And one of the influences I want to relate right now is a song that makes me wonder, how did this get in so deep? Because I probably listened to a billion songs when I was young. But this one, it's called Money, not by the Beatles. But the song from 1959, I was 14, and I'm listening to this. The guy's name is Barrett Strong, and this music is like outrageously rock and roll with a heavy beat and a dynamite backup group. But here's what captured my attention. I'd like to read two sets of lyrics. First one is, your love give me such a thrill, but your love don't pay my bills. The next one is, money don't get everything, it's true, but what it don't get, I can't use. So I'm 76 now, I'm looking back and going, that got somewhere in me. That got embedded somehow here. I don't know where or how, but it was just part of how I grew up, that there was this sense of, you gotta have it. Well, the chorus line is, give me money. Give me money, give me money. Of course, right now in this part of my life, a lot of these phrases have turned. Instead of give me money, how might I offer support to something that may be worthwhile, say, in the spiritual domain? So at 14, I learned that I needed to go get money. So I delivered papers to 63 homes for a dollar a day, peddled up Cherry Hill every day and down Cherry Hill, $1 a day. That lasted seven months. And that was worth it because I had a dollar. And you know what I'd do with my dollars? I would go out and buy cigarettes and records. So I'd listen to more rock and roll and I'd be out there with the guys and I'd be smoking. I'd be identifying myself, creating my image of myself. As I look back on this right now, I realize that I was being taken by this media culture. Literally, my attention was being taken. Part of, to me, what practice means now is working to develop attention in me. Well, back then, little did I know, I never realized the effect that all of this would have on me because it actually made me think that I was a lot of what I was hearing. Whether it was music, advertisement, oh, I needed that. Yep, that brand of cigarettes would be better than that brand of cigarettes or that kind of beer or whatever the hell it was. But that is how this personality got built. And now at 76, I'm looking back and I'm deconstructing because there's lots of that thought-imposed personality, which is irrelevant. I'm not going to die if I don't think those thoughts, but my thinking process would love me to keep thinking those thoughts. It's just habit. So I'm realizing I am taken by habit and I'm willing to work now to release myself from this habit. So getting back to these lyrics, I know now that your love don't pay my bills. I can tell you that. I'm willing to understand that there's a distinction between love and money. And there's also a relationship that's very deep, very deep. Why? It's enculturated. 
And all you got to do is look at American advertising and love is romance is woven into everything. But I know now that your love don't pay my bills. So the 76-year-old guy talks to the 14-year-old and goes, you've moved past that. The other one was money don't get everything, but what it don't get, I can't use. Well, that brings up these great questions for me. What is it that money don't get that I need now? The way this culture goes with attention being stolen, by the way, I looked this up today to speak about attention being stolen. The level of credit debt in America is in the trillions. The average American, not family, American owes 6,000 bucks in credit. 60% of Americans live from paycheck to paycheck. All of this is about how our attention is taken, and we're constantly finding ourselves in need to buy stuff, to be that which we buy. And so part of where this talk takes me is to think about the effect American culture has in terms of its consumer culture on creating the way our personalities are because we let our thinking direct who we are. And one way to work with that is to open up our practice to observe ourselves, not judge ourselves through observation, but just observe the way we are. No judgments. When I look at this talk, at the title, Working with Money as Spiritual Practice, when I started looking at each of those three key words, work, money, and spiritual practice, and I began to ask myself, what is that I know about work besides employment? Because listen, I just finished working for 50 years or whatever it was, 60 or something years. What is it about work? What is it about money? What is it about spiritual practice? By the way, how are these connected? How does spiritual life weave together work, money? How does practice become more intelligible in response to our condition? Okay. The song that comes to my mind is that Pink Floyd song. Money. The lyrics for that, it's in pretty deep. Money, it's a gas. Grab that cash with both hands and make a stash. I thought that I would, from my part, speak about some things that have impacted me in relationship with money. To me, it seems if we're going to consider this topic, we should look at what we consider spiritual practice to be. That provides the context for working with money. Some people consider abundance to be spiritual practice, or some people consider asceticism to be spiritual practice. I think that Regina and Tom would probably describe spiritual practice differently, but we probably agree that it has something to do with accepting what is as it is. Whether you have a lot of money, whether you don't have much money, it seems like money is a pretty primal motivation for people. To me, working with money on the path has to do with how we relate to it. The Indian master Swami Prajnanpad was the spiritual master of Arnaud Desjardins, an extraordinary French master. And he devised a series of what he called formulas, pithy statements that could bring us back to self-reflection about our own practice. And one of those statements was, bank is mother. I think the point of that was that money represents safety in the way that mother represented safety when we were a child. But the thing is, if we accumulate more and are more comfortable, which happens to many people as they get to middle age, maybe they're not part of that 60% that lives paycheck to paycheck, but there is still this underlying dynamic of grasping or holding on, whether we've got a lot or whether we've got a little. And the cause of suffering in Buddhism is grasping and holding on. 
Along those lines, there's a statement by Mr. Gold, E.J. Gold. Security is not the cure for insecurity. To really look at that for a minute, to me it means the more security that we have in this instance in terms of money, but it can be other things too, you would think that that might resolve issues with insecurity. But they say you can't take it with us. And when we die, they could back up a dump truck full of $100 bills and let it go into your grave, but you still can't take it with you. So examining our tendency to hold on while we're alive is useful practice. The question we might consider is, what are we holding on to? It looks like we're holding on to money, but money represents safety. What are we really holding on to? We can practice with that in relationship to money. About this talk, different ideas came up. And one of them that really struck me was a statement by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, another extraordinary master, who said that relationship to money is a powerful thing and that patterns of dealing with money get passed on from generation to generation. Relationship to money remains intact in families, more than many other things. I thought about that. Yeah, that's really true. I started thinking about my own situation, of course. My father, (laughs) I'm another one of us who has parents who were born in the Depression. And my dad was orphaned when he was 12. He lost his mom when he was eight. And he went into an orphanage. This issue of safety was really up for him. He moved to New York and he worked and worked and worked and saved and saved and saved. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm really like that. When I got involved in spiritual life, I didn't really play that same pattern out until I had a family. And then I worked and worked and worked and saved and saved and saved. And I just ask you, what messages did you receive about money that are generational, perhaps? Or are you still playing that out? To me, I feel really fortunate for a lot of things that I received, including that. How can I appreciate that, that dynamic, and also grow beyond it? Because it's been very useful. It's been very helpful to me in some ways. But if I just stay in a little box, this is how much I can relate with money, and this is how much I can relate with life by extension, how much am I really practicing? And I can go through the motions with different practices, but we have to step back sometimes and really see the underlying context that we approach life from. And looking at money is a great way of doing that because it's not just about money. So loosening up about relationship with money, that's not about spending everything. These things aren't black and white. It really requires some refined discrimination as we go along. At least that's been the case for me. For example, not wasting resources. It's a principle of the spiritual path. So just because I have the money, maybe I don't need to spend it. In fact, maybe it's not really great practice to go spending on things that I don't need. On the other hand, One of the things that my teacher, Lee Loswick, said on occasion was to think big. How can I get bigger? In a lot of different ways. But one way to work with that is with money. So if I get bigger with money, maybe I can contribute something different. Or maybe I develop some responsibility that I didn't have before. And maybe that would serve in some ways. We learn through intensified circumstances, and money can bring those kind of things up. For example, if you all of a sudden start working with more money, with more energy, basically, then maybe other things come up that wouldn't come up otherwise. More fears, greed, power, other aspects of oneself that we're not so much in touch with when we just walk down the road without getting bigger. Would we sell out 
if you had the opportunity, we all would probably say no, but with money, with power, with fame, would we sell out? There's a story, I don't want to get down on this guy, but it's a story that's been often told in the community that I've been a part of, where a guy was going to come into, uh, in those days, windfall of about $5,000 through selling real estate. And he said that he was going to give the money to the community. And then as time went on and the time came for him to get his commission, he said, who am I kidding? that I'm going to give this money to the community. When we deal with money and don't just live paycheck to paycheck, there might be some other opportunities that come up. I'm not saying that this is for everybody. Some people, it may be right for them to take a vow of poverty. I think that we have to assess for ourselves where we're at, how our spiritual life works innately for us, whether that would be on an ashram or out in the world or in a convent. There are some things that have no price. Opportunities. I have experienced these. Have you? Where something comes along, it's a really unique opportunity. It's probably not ever going to happen again. And there's this tendency, at least I've seen this in myself, to want to be stingy. It's like, oh, this is a stretch. This will be going into the unknown. I don't really want to do that. It costs so much money or something. And those things don't come back again when you miss that opportunity. So I remember when my son, Kina, graduated from high school, I had wanted to take him on a trip to Africa. But I was really going back and forth. Can I afford this? Can I take time off from work? How is that going to work with my life? And just having done that is irreplaceable. I walk into his house today, and there's a picture on the wall of us on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. That's priceless. Worth anything. If we put things above these opportunities, and in this case of our kids, then the relationship to opportunity of our kids will be compromised. We don't give them a gift, an example of how to step out into life and take some chances with money. And if you don't take those opportunities, you may miss things in life that would change the course of events for you. So one thing that Lee Loswick said is that money is only a means to an end and not an end in itself. So people work and work and work and work and they accumulate whatever they accumulate and, <laughs> and then they die. That doesn't seem to be what the path is about. How can we use money to profit ourselves on the path? And how can we offer something with this gift that we have? in this life now. So it's good to work hard, but maybe not so hard. My wife, Karuna, she used to really want me to come home for dinner, but I would be working, working, working. That pattern for me, and hopefully I made it up in other ways, but I wonder about that still. Should I have done that? I worked a different shift and that made things work for the whole family. And it was a job where I could make a contribution and, and that was all good. But I missed some things as a result of that. Money is energy and energy is always returned, but maybe not in the form of money. So I'm in a cafe in France and there's about 20 people and they're all talking and having drinks and all this. And everybody's just not saying anything, but I know that everybody's thinking about how we're going to pay for this. <laughs> but nobody's saying anything about it. And time is going on, the sun is going down, and it's, hmm, it's really time to leave. And are we going to get separate checks, 20 separate? And I just instinctually, it's obvious, just pay for the damn bill. And I did that. And 
The euros mean nothing now. But having cop to instinct, that meant something. That was useful for my practice. It always pays to be generous, as Regina or Tom said, something like that. Generosity, oh yeah. But practice with money isn't about being impulsive. I worked in a casino for about three years. Some of the most exciting job circumstances that I've ever had happened in the course of working in a casino. I could start telling stories, but my time is about up too. But just to watch people and to see yourself reflected in other people, people betting on the come, people wanting to hit the big one and leaving broke. Wisdom doesn't seem to be about being tight-fisted, but it also isn't about spending foolishly. And yet, I found great value in losing money sometimes. I've kicked myself after it, but in retrospect, that was really useful. I'm still alive. I dropped five grand. Oh, well, go on. Just this. We might be successful because of our karma. Maybe it's just that. But even if we're successful, we can be stressed about money. So I wrote down two things to me that indicate success with money. This is just personally. And one is the ease with which I'm able to maintain relationship with it and with the material world. And I can kind of track myself when things come up big expenditures or minor things, going to a grocery store and trying to get the best deal or whatever, and being willing to pay for our work, being willing to pay for my work. If there's something that we can offer, we give and we receive, some contribution we can make, some way that we can work that would be useful for us I think that it's important to be able to pay for that and to be willing to pay for that. Am I willing to support values bigger than just for me? Here's a quote from Lee, and then I'll end and see if Regina and Tom have any comments. Lee Loswick said, we want to stop thinking about money in terms of having or not having it. And we want to start thinking about money in terms of having it without stress or worry so that our relationship to money is natural and unproblematical. What you're bringing up is about putting your money where your heart is, in the sense of the spiritual heart. And this principle of tithing comes out of almost every spiritual tradition. You give dana, you support the monastery, you support the teaching, and you take 10% or whatever tithe comes from the 10% idea to support the work through the work that you were doing outside. You tithed in order to support those within the body who were not necessarily doing work on the outside, who were actually working for the community. And it's kind of gone out of favor, this whole idea. Maybe you gave a dollar in church or something on a Sunday, but the idea that you really would look at where you're getting your spiritual nourishment. Look at where our money might be supporting a value that's larger than ourselves. Because a lot of the way I spend money is on myself or my immediate circumstances, not necessarily on something that's larger. And for me, it's really, really important and wondrous to be able to give a portion of my money, even to the point where it hurts a little bit, where it's a little more than I might feel I could afford to support something that's larger. The people who are doing the kind of work that I support, the institutions that are doing the kind of work that I support, or the spiritual community, these places where I get my nourishment. I just think it's really valuable. And not only that, but I think it creates a very fluid and friendly relationship to money, whereby money becomes your expression of your love, your caring, your gratitude. There's a lot of complaint about money. Today's April 15th. It's interesting that in America, this is tax day. You hear people all the time, ah, I'm going to do my taxes. 
is our conversation around money and its use. Is it a friendly conversation or is it a conversation of scarcity and fear and rebellion and antagonism and so on? Certainly we'll make use of public thoroughfares, but do we want to pay taxes? It's another deal. I did want to add something important for me, and it has to do with the consideration of the nature of gift. There are principles involved with giving that are pragmatic, and yet there's a principle that goes beyond what can be measured, and that is the development of a relationship with what I prefer to call the divine, this field of divine influence within which everything exists. And one way of engaging that relationship is to presume that spiritual practice has been given. I just didn't womp it up someday and go, I'm going to have some spiritual practice. Something moved in me that is not from me. And over time, that has been cultivated through practice, which led me deeper into this study of what gift is about without trying to overly define it, but to continue to cultivate the mood that has created and sustained some sense of a power greater than myself, use 12 steps language. I'd like to read a quote. This is from Sri Aurobindo, which is what I feel is moving me. And this is from an article in Parabola from 1991 called The Role of Money. And I quote Sri Aurobindo, All wealth belongs to the divine, and those who hold it are trustees, not possessors. In your personal use of money, look on all you have or get or bring as the mothers. Be entirely selfless, entirely scrupulous, exact, careful in detail, a good trustee. Always consider that it is her possessions and not your own that you are handling. So that may sound esoteric. For me, it's the foundation of what I would call a reciprocal relationship, where I honor qualities that have been manifest in me, that have touched me, that I can't necessarily say I own or I created, but I know they exist. And I offer those qualities back, including my history of myself, my habits and things. And I offer that back. I receive the gift and I want it to serve. So I keep the gift moving, moving it through service, through kindness, through generosity, through compassion, not only for others, not only for the divine, but for myself, in that I may deepen and cultivate my practice. One thing that's occurred to me is this statement, sacrifice is about giving, not about giving up. I feel that whatever is natural in terms of finances is just fine. There's no prescription about how it's supposed to be necessarily. But I can spend myself in areas that it feels right to do so, instead of holding back and being stingy. How can I spend myself? To me, that's the vow of poverty, is not to build myself up, not to be self-promoting, but to genuinely have the intention to be of service wherever we're called and to give oneself to that. So obviously we all have egos still, so probably aren't going to do that perfectly, but we can intend that. And then when we screw up, just pick ourselves up and keep going, Mm -hmm. cultivating that intention. Talking about intention, that's such a big subject. This could go on for a week, this conversation, because then everybody could begin to share what they're coming up with. But I have found, just through good luck and through grace, 
that intention comes first and the money follows. It's not the other way around. Somebody said to me, well, I don't even want to have that discussion until we know we have that much money to get that thing. And I thought, oh, that's too bad because the intention to manifest this new thing or this change that we want will create an energetic field whereby the money can be found, money can be created, money will be given as a result of the intention. And I just have had so many examples in my life, especially in my early years with Lee, where I didn't have that much money, but he was going on trips and I knew it was going to be expensive. But the intention to go and focusing on I'm going to go, it was more than magical sometimes, literally. There were specific examples where because I had the intention of a particular thing in a particular amount, that money just showed up for me. You can do more than you think you can if your intention is strong. I think definitely intention comes first and money follows. If we don't give, if we don't pay for our work, well, maybe we're not going to get so much in return. We show the universe that we're willing to give. Financially, is just one way. Maybe not even the major way. Maybe we pay more with our pride. Yes. Spiritual practitioners can get lost in bhavic states. There's nothing wrong with that. However, here we are in this world. It's about rigorous self-honesty about the way you are and paying, like you mentioned, pride. Pride and vanity are two key elements for putting yourself to work, observing yourself, paying for your work by allowing you to observe the way you really are, not judging yourself, but observing. And according to Lee, that is payment. That's paying attention. That's payment for the work. Yes. Okay. So I think that this is a good time, if you guys agree, to open it up for a couple questions. I'm not clear on what you mean by paying for your work. If you could clarify that. I'll put it in my way. What do you have to offer, say, the divine in a reciprocal relationship? We're talking about tithing and things like that, but in another domain, you have the possibility of offering the way you really are. You can live in your life as if your thinking is you. When you begin to observe, it begins to break down, or that aspect of you gets to be deconstructed. And in my perspective, energy is then available. You become more free, and that energy then goes back into your work so you can serve. So there's a group that I help facilitate once a week. And the group studies a particular piece of the teaching every week. And then when we get together, the object of the group is that we work as a group and that we each contribute, whether we've done the homework or done the study or we failed at the practice or we've succeeded. But everybody speaks. Everybody comes forth in vulnerability. And there's a certain way in which that is paying for the gift of having a work group, a group of people who are gathered together to work. This is a way in which we pay for our work, honesty and vulnerability. I'm finding that there's a whole new meaning in this moment of my life when I show up at a particular meeting to be present for those who are present rather than just showing up for myself. With money, money and spirituality, what I seem to also feel is a sense of responsibility. And what I can offer is to be available I have a few animals, I have a few things. I'm with the greenhouse thing. 
So I like to cook and I like to learn and I like to give to my friends and, and, and gather and learn together. That's what I can give today. I think this is bringing out this piece about creating beauty and creating richness even without a whole lot of money. We often think we have to have a lot of money in order to create something beautiful, and it's just not true. So much of it is attention to a space, adding color and adding beauty. Another thing that our teacher Lee Laswick would say was seek beauty, avoid suffering. Not that you can avoid the natural suffering of just being human, but you want to create as much beauty around you as you possibly can because beauty uplifts your soul. And it uplifts those around you. And that's richness. That's a very high form of money. Creating beauty. Anyone who understands or follows in some way a tantric path does not want to refuse the beauty and the richness of life. Not to say that they're indulgent with it, but that they use it as praise for the divine. Kabir says something like, why would I put liner around my eyes unless it was to attract the beloved? So everything becomes an act of relationship to the divine. Spiritual practice is life practice. It's inclusive in everything. And I go out and feed the birds in my backyard. Now it's been going on for quite a while. I get to know them a little bit and their timing. And I keep peeking out there and seeing what they're doing. And I feel like I'm connected with life in a big way. And there's different birds come in at different times. And then there's the squirrels and the raccoons, all this stuff happens. I'm part of this. I am definitely part of this. I'm a participant, not just an observer. And I think that's part of engaging life fully as practice, not just spiritual practice as ritual. It's much, much bigger than that. And when I'm out there and I see all this life force, it just draws my attention to the presence of what I would call the divine. Something way bigger than this little me. One thing about paying for our work that occurs to me is the value with discrimination of taking a risk about something with a project and spending money that might pan out and might be useful for people, for others, and for oneself. But it might be as simple as expressing what's real for me in a situation. Sometimes it's hard to be vulnerable. But I think that we grow by having met challenges in our lives with money and just energetically in other areas of our lives. So sometimes people won't speak up, but they have something really useful to offer. And we pay with that. And when we do, when I have done that, something always comes back to me if I'm genuine about what it is that is going on for me. And I express that and take that kind of a risk. Something useful happens. The other thing about money is how do we receive it? I know that I've been afraid to ask for a certain amount for my services for something because I am undermining myself and trying to protect this poor other person that I'm asking for the money or money is gifted to me or someone else and we feel bad. They couldn't really want to give that to me. So there's a whole thing about our way in which we relate to life where we're actually standing under this rain of gift, but we've got this umbrella up and we're protecting ourselves from it. I was talking to my friend today who has an editorial business and she said she actually has to hold on to the table when she says to somebody, that would be $4,000 for that work. And she holds her breath because she's like, can I actually do that? But I'm good at what I do and I know I can do that. And the person says, sure, no problem. And then the next person, 
She'll tell them the price and they'll say, well, couldn't I have a discount and this and this and this? And she's found is those people who try and work it down, work it down. They are so difficult to work with (laughs) that sometimes you just don't even want to take them as a client because it's really difficult to work with somebody who's trying to squeeze the last dollar out of you. I'm sure there's plenty of stories on the other side of that. But for those of us in spiritual life on a path like this, most of us are not super high finance people, although some of us have been. But to look at how we have undervalued ourselves and how we're unwilling to stand in relationship to money and to receive money and to value ourselves with it. It's important, I think. Yeah. Money is such a charged commodity and can bring up all kinds of fears. But to relate with that directly, it can actually be tantric practice that stirs up all kinds of primal emotions for us. One of the things that happened just today was to drop into the feminine for me around money rather than the problem of money. This energy comes in and through its time with us, it can go out into the world and offer its gift. And it's such a different view for me than the problem of it all. And it's really beautiful. Oh my gosh. And Andy here, I'm reading the chat. Someone says, I remember reading from Alejandro Jodorowsky this phrase, what you don't give to others, you don't give to yourself. What you give to others, you give it to yourself. I think that's a good place to end.